Get out of a conference. Surfer Jim! <laughs> You guys are scaring me. Wait a minute, hold on. I gotta disinfect this place. This is not good, no one's got a mask. Everybody needs to have two masks. What's going on? The scandemic is real. Science, we all know that, right? Okay, this is crazy, crazy, crazy. I'm sweating. I will make a point that will relate to the scandemic. Everybody should be able to recognize my logic and how, this is a big joke. Okay, we do need to get all this crap off of me. Excuse me while I undress in front of everybody. <laughs> Had to protect my feet and everything. All right. Okay, there's my presentation, cool. It's still small. I've never done this, folks. Never given a, a public speech ever. I've never used PowerPoint. Oh, Mike is good. He just made it bigger. Cool. Uh, okay. Oh, that's even better, Mike. Thank you. Okay. All right. So I just went through all the scandemic crap. So, so I just want to thank a few people. Obviously, Gary, he's awesome. He put this whole thing together. But I just learned how to use PowerPoint like yesterday. So I'm a total novice up here. But I had a good friend of mine who helped me. She goes by Sage Princess on Twitter, and she's brilliant. And she can take any business in Bitcoin and make it a billion dollar business. So anybody wants to meet her, come see me. She's a very smart woman. All right, let's see what I got here. So next slide is, okay. So you guys know my talk. I say Bitcoin is inevitable. And I can prove it. Is that showing? Yeah, cool. I think. So let's try. Okay. So Bitcoin, I think, will produce several inevitabilities. Let's look at what they are. I think uh, it's inevitable that Bitcoin will be the world's money. A lot of people already believe that as well. And that's pretty much the main premise of this. And I hope to offer some proof about that. Um, I think it will reduce violence as well. Uh, people who can trade fairly in this world, um, having accurate price signals, end up fighting um, less often, in my opinion. That's, that's what I see in the world. I believe it will enhance peace, which is basically the opposite of reducing violence. Um, I think it's going to fix people, actually. It's directly related to the last two. Excuse me. I am very hot up here. All right. Um, <laughs> I see this in the quality of people that are here and all the people I know in Bitcoin. Um, those who think very deeply about first principles are the people who get Bitcoin. It takes a little while. You have to understand a few different disciplines to get Bitcoin. But I think people that get Bitcoin are among the smartest people on the, on the planet. So give yourselves a round of applause. We're, we're a bunch of brainiacs here, right? All right, I think it's going to help the Earth. A lot of us are very aware of how Bitcoin is taking advantage of the greenest energy on the planet, uh, but most people don't know it, but we, of course, do. So I think that's inevitable. Oh, say, so I think it's going to, I hope it's going to reduce government. Uh, we don't need most of what government is. And uh, in my opinion, and I've heard other people talk about this, once their money is no good, their enforcers are going to quit. And we need that, right? So we need to talk to the enforcers and explain to them they're, they're screwing us by staying loyal to them. So I think that's inevitable. Um, I think banking is going to get destroyed by Bitcoin. That's also good. Uh, they won't be able to print money out of thin air. 
Um, if they're going to invest some money that they have, they're going to have to find actual investments. They can't just make paper, you know, work, write words on paper and trade it around and steal people's money, you know, with no actual value behind it, right? So they have to invest in actual real stuff, and there won't be the Cantillion effect, right, which we all know about. So, okay. I also think it's inevitable that Bitcoin will be considered the most important discovery in all of human history. Um, everything about Bitcoin was already here, just not combined correctly. And I hope to illustrate how that all came together. So just a warning here. You may see what looks like a bit of shameless self-promotion um, during this talk. You know, pay no attention, but it is. And um, hopefully it's relevant, and that's why I put it in here. Um, uh, I also don't really care if you don't like it. I'm one of these old guys that came to realize, like, nobody really cares about me, so I don't really care about much else either, you know? I'm just going to wing it up here, see if you guys get something out of it. We'll see. Um, all right, where am I? Uh, all right, I'm going to talk about my background, but I do want to mention one thing first. My main goal for being up here is to say words that resonate with people, that gives them some value. You people, your, all your time is super valuable to you, and I don't want to waste it. So I really hope that anything I say, somebody can take something and use it. So that's my goal. All right, a little bit about me. Some people may have heard me say in the past that as a kid growing up, I used to take everything apart. I had this obsession to want to know how things work inside. So I took my record player apart. My mom would walk into the room, my brand new record player. What is that doing on the floor all apart? Sometimes I got them back together, sometimes I didn't. Uh, graduated to my bicycle eventually, eventually the car, and then houses. I'm a contractor for 30 years, so I build houses. But it's how I came to understand Bitcoin. I spent six months studying the nuts and bolts of how Bitcoin works. I had to understand. I could not promote it, buy any, if I didn't understand it. So. I watched the price triple in six months, and I was very upset about that, because I was like, what the heck, you idiot, you should have studied faster, but I'm okay with it now, all right? So I come to this perspective after a lifetime of education, observation, analysis, specifically more than five decades worth. Um, <clears throat> from the earliest years I can remember, I've always been curious about how things around me worked in the world, right? So I can remember getting my first toolbox as a kid. Uh, so excited about it because I just needed tools. I had to take things apart. My younger brother and I got the same exact toolbox. It's not that one, but because <clears throat> we had similar mechanical interests. Um, he went on to become a top-notch auto mechanic and eventually a master plumber with those skills. I became a contractor building custom homes on Fire Island, Long Island, New York. Uh, okay. So I was able to take things apart, but more importantly, I was able to fix things. So that's me, Mr. Fix-It. I can fix like a lot of stuff. I can fix stuff I've never seen before just by analyzing how it works and figure out what's not working correctly. Now that works in the mechanical world. I'm no good at like electronics. I grew up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when there wasn't a huge amount of electronics, so my world revolved around mechanical stuff. I also could save money by fixing stuff, but what I did not realize at the time was I was learning intuitively first principles that were all around me, acting on me that I had no control over. So uh, <coughs> first principles break things down to their most basic components, and then you, you build from that. You got you to gotta know what like the foundation is. So, so like the blockchain is the foundation of Bitcoin, and we can build on top of that. Uh, so my favorite quote about first principles. First principles act on us regardless of our knowledge of them or our attitude towards them. 
right? So gravity is the best example. You don't have to know about gravity, but it's affecting all of us right now. And if you don't like gravity, you can go walk up on the roof and step off, but it's not going to care, right? <laughs> gravity is going to act on you regardless. That's what first principles do. So as a kid growing up, one of the first things I started figuring out was how the bike works, you know? Twisting nuts and bolts, you know, how do the brakes stop the tire? If I gave a broken bicycle where the brakes didn't work to 100 people, I bet you only 20 of them could fix the brakes. And they're not hard, but most people just don't know how to look at mechanical stuff. They're just not mechanically inclined. But for me, it was like simple, and I loved it. And then there was the lawnmower. I got a little older, and my father gave me and my brother control of the lawnmower. And I had to figure out how to keep it running. And uh, you start to realize some stuff. You know, it helps if the blade is really sharp. It helps if the grass is dry uh, when you cut it. You don't want the chute to clog. And then there's the motor. I learned very early in life that an internal combustion engine requires compression, fuel, and spark. Three things, that's it. But there's a lot that makes that happen. Once you figure that out, you can actually fix an engine pretty easy. So my brother and I became the keepers of all things mechanical around the house. The lawnmower was one of the first responsibilities we had. Uh, this is a push mower, as you can see. We ended up with a ride-on mower, <coughs> but my parents did not want me to get this one. Right? They, were, they, were a little, they were smart enough. But my brother and I took the, the ride-on we had, and we souped it up, made it go a little faster. We figured out that if one of us stood on the back and one of us drove it, we could pop wheelies right, like right across the front lawn with the blades underneath spinning. It's not dangerous. It's all good. It's, it's every, every 11, 12-year-old does that. It's, it's, it's normal. Um, so we had some fun with that. Eventually, we worked our way up to cars, learned how to fix brakes, do tune-ups. We, we were in charge of the family cars at this point, me and my brother. And we're like teenagers, like 16, 17, fixing as much as we could. Uh, I eventually got to the point where I could change an engine out of a car. I've done it twice by myself. I, you know, whatever. It's just like I was loving doing it, learning the whole time. Break something, oh shoot, got to go buy something, fix that, whatever. But it was fun. That's been my life. So one of the things that helped me growing up was my parents were smart enough to realize I needed this. So they bought me every plastic model they could find. All these, you know, you glue them together, little cars and boats and planes and stuff. But this one did it for me. This was an amazing project. This is called the Visible V8 engine. And this thing with a battery actually works. You can watch the pistons go up and down, the camshaft. I was like fascinated building this. I built two of them because I loved doing it the first one. They bought me another one. So I really, really learned how an engine works by building that model. It was very cool. So imagine my surprise and my delight next Christmas when I found this thing under the tree. So this company built a chassis for a car that you could put that motor on. I got to learn about how the gearbox works, the, the steering box. And one of the most fascinating things about car engineering is the differential in the back axle. If you ever get to look at how that works, it's absolutely fascinating. When you turn a car, and so you're on a circle, the inner wheel spins less rotations than the outer wheel. And if they can't compensate, one of those wheels is going to hang up on the pavement. So the differential in an axle is amazing engineering. And I was just so fascinated to learn that stuff as a kid. It was so cool. So from my first director set as a little boy, learning to build stuff, to my latest kitchen remodel, which is that. It's my bookkeeper's kitchen. These principles, these intuitive first principles, have held true my whole life. All right, so there are a lot of first principles out there, right? Uh, oh, I didn't put notes to this. Gravity, geometry, wedge. I'm going to go over them individually. You can see that up on the screen. So let me just keep going. So gravity, right? <clears throat> this is the one we mentioned before. As a builder, 
it doesn't matter my attitude about gravity. I, I don't get to choose plumb and level, right? I can try and build a house, but if I don't align with those principles, my house is going to fall down or have problems. So this is one of the most basic principles. Everything is built off of these two principles, plumb and levy. Everything we see had to take that into consideration before somebody made it. Very, very interesting when you look it through. So another one of these type of first principles is, well, we use this in carpentry all the time, a three, four, five triangle. If you take three units in one direction, four units in the other direction, and then take another straight line, and till, they, till those two connect, that straight line will be five units, always. And the inside corner will be 90 degrees, always. So that geometry is in, on the planet. It was here before we understood it, but we found it. Right? As humans, we found this stuff. Right? So this operates on us anyway. It's another first principle. That triangle leads to something called an inclined plane, which engineers deal with all the time. I'll get to that a little bit later. Um, we figured out, so the, a screw is simply a, a um, inclined plane wrapped around a shaft. Right? The concept of an inclined plane is in a screw. Right? Circles. We, man decided to cut them up into 360 degrees. There's a whole history about that. It's another part of geometry. It's another part of this world that's here anyway. We figured it out. We gave it labels, and we figured out how to use it. Another thing is um, there are different substances that react predictably, pre predictably with other substances. So chemical experiments um, are, are there in nature, and we had to you know, test and figure them all out. We put a bunch of things together and something exploded and like, okay, better not do that again. Um, so with chemical expense, you, know, you reproduce your results that require accurate measurements, but something like chemicals, you're never gonna get the same amount of molecules in each, each thing you're gonna test. So there's always gonna be variability in testing, but we still can count on some of this stuff. So uh, let's see. Yeah, so we figured out how to deal with all these first principles, right? So how did we find them, right? So we would, as I just said, we would apply forces. Let's say we would do something, apply a force, and then do it again and do it again, and see if we could reproduce our results. So you, you keep doing this, you, you observe, you repeat, and you catalog all this stuff, and you start getting some statistics about what's going on. From this, predictions can be made and standard deviations are derived. For those of you who don't know what that is, I'll explain in a minute. Um, we create what's known as a bell curve, and uh, I'll show some illustrations of, of what's going on with that. Um, from this, we derive truths in physics and engineering, right? We test, we figure out. So how does somebody know that a steel beam can handle a certain amount of weight? Well, they broke a few to figure out what kind of pressure was needed, right? So we, and then after you do it enough, you can guarantee, use the right steel beam in the right place, it won't fail. We figured this stuff out, but it took a while, and you have to, you have to go through the effort, you know, type of proof of work, let's call it. All right, so the bell curve thing, we're going to talk about that a lot here, so uh, I just wanted to reference that. So now, uh, oh, this is another one. All right, so for the past 30 years, I run my own construction company. I do everything from fixing, like, insect screens. Oh, it's up there, but I didn't put it in my notes. All right. And I lift houses. I pick houses up like 20 feet in the air. This is one of my shameless self-promotions. Um, but you, you know, if you're going to do something like this, you cannot ignore first principles at all. So what you're looking at here is uh, uh, one family owns two homes. The one on the right is going down onto its new foundation. The one on the left is being lifted up to get the new foundation put under it. And the house on the left is what it looked like when it was almost done with the new decks around it. I don't have a good picture of the other one. This is another job we did. This house, oops, yeah, this house got flooded during Hurricane Sandy. 
Um, if you notice, there's a sliding glass door in that picture, and the decks were right at there. We tear all the decks off the house before we lift it. Um, this house got water in its floor, so we had to renovate it, but they realized we've got to lift it up, so this is how high we lifted it. It's a huge, huge house. It weighs several hundred thousand pounds, and uh, you got to pick it up really high because the poles, these are houses that sit on wooden poles on a barrier island. So the poles stick six or eight feet out of the ground, but they're like 10 to 15 feet below the ground. So in order to fit them under the house and get them in the ground, you got to pick the house up really high. So you, you got to, and so this is like what this house kind of looked like. It's hard to get a good picture of it from far away. We build new decks around it all. And yeah, so one more, one more uh, project to show you. And this one, you can see to the right of that house some wood. It's uh, basically a ramp that we built. We tore down the decks, built ourselves a ramp so we can get our equipment down onto the site because the walkway leading to this house is like two and a half feet above the ground. So uh, we picked this house up, again, really high. And then from the street side, this is what approximately what it looked like after we finished building all the decks around it. So all this, you can't ignore first principles. So in a world of mechanics that I grew up in, certain principles rule, like gravity being the biggest one. From that, we figure plumb and level, right? So man has observed plumb and level and formulated concepts that we talk about like X coordinate, Y coordinate, and Z coordinate. And with that, we can do 3D printing, stuff like that, right? Everything is calibrated against gravity. I mentioned this earlier. Every factory on this earth, every product that is made, every machine that is built that has to make something else has to be, you need a benchmark. And in this world, we use gravity as our benchmark. So perfectly plumb and 90 degrees off that is perfectly level. If you need a machine to make something like the bed on your 3D printer, it needs to be level in both directions. And that concept is in everything on this planet. Nobody can do anything about that. If you want your products to come out, good, you gotta take this stuff into consideration. What's my next one? Okay. All right, so uh, some of these mechanical principles. There's a thing known as a lever, three types of levers, and they work differently depending on where the fulcrum, the effort, and the load are relative to each other. Um, you don't get to decide on this stuff, just which method you're gonna use. The forces are there. You've got to figure out how to deal with these forces the best way you can. So a lever is one thing. A pulley is another thing. They work differently, but they're based on um, the need and the loads, similar uh, to the different levers in that they allow you to move heavy loads with less effort. And there's different configurations of pulleys that humans have figured out, and this stuff works, and it works on uh, physics and stuff. So we talked about the incline plane, which uh, has angle of incline, the rise to run, the weight that you're trying to push up. It, all these forces come into play to determine if an incline plane is even worth having, you know, if we can use it for any reason. And some guys a long time ago figured out we might be able to. And uh, a lot of uh, belief that the pyramids were built in a similar manner. You know, you got to get some heavy stones way up high, just push them up a very small slope of a hill, and eventually you'll get up there. Uh, so some other uh, first principles that are out there. These are mechanical principles. Compression. These things act on us. It's out there. We give them names. We figure out how to measure them. But compression, tension, bending forces, torsion forces, shear forces. These are all mechanical stuff that I've been living with, dealing with my whole life. Arches are built understanding compression. So what's happening here is every stone in the arch is wedge-shaped, so they can't slip through as gravity is pulling them down. And the compression that's created takes the weight on the very top, if you look at the picture on the right, there's pressure going straight down, or 
if you put weight on the very top, on the keystone, that pressure goes out through the arches and goes straight down into the ground on the two bases on either side. So men have figured this stuff out. That's how they built those aqueducts thousands of years ago and wherever it is in Greece or wherever. You guys know what I'm talking about. All right. So another force that's out there, tension and withdrawal forces. So two people pull on a rope, it's gonna be in tension. You take like an eye hook and screw it up into like a ceiling and hang something from it. That's called a withdrawal force. It wants to be pulled out, but that's also part of tension. Uh, and, we, and when I'm building stuff, I have to take this into consideration all the time. If you, if you drive a nail straight up with a smooth shaft and then hang something from it, it'll slide right out over time, but not a screw, not with an incline plane. That won't slide out, there's too much friction. Uh, so, bending forces actually take into consideration compression and tension, as you can see here. Then there's torque or torsion forces and shear forces. Something like this is everywhere. So bolts are used, bolts and pins are used um, to prevent shear from happening. So imagine any machine that has two set points and an arm, and that arm has to move, and there's a pin in the middle. So the arm, the middle arrow, is pulling one way, trying to slice that bolt, and the bolt being stationary on whatever it's on is trying to be sliced in the other direction. Compression and tension are also involved here, but we call that a shear force. So men have figured out how to calculate all this stuff using math and numbers, and I don't understand a bit of it. I just know it intuitively. I couldn't, I don't know those calculations, but luckily some people do. And they figure out, again, going back to what I said before, by knowing how to do this stuff, you can predict and you can trust what you're gonna build in the future, right? So, so how do we prove these first principles? How do we find these truths? So the more granular, granularly we measure, the better we can know what the truth is. So that's why men figured out to go all the way down to like atoms and molecules and like, like okay, well, how does this work? Let's go deeper, right? So uh, let's see, Phys uh, nuts. all right, so I will build up this logic in this order. We're gonna talk about physical, then non-physical, and then subjective truths. So man decides to measure, uses those numbers, which are essentially perfect for the most part. Uh, more on that later. Basically, we conduct experiments, log the results, and look for patterns. We measure things like weight, lengths, temperatures, pressures, the forces we just talked about, compression, withdrawal. So we've given labels. We've figured, we've, we've come up with contraptions that we can trust to measure, you know, set a benchmark. So a ruler is created. This is an inch. This is a meter, whatever. And we then, so that's our standard. And we use that to judge all the other things. As long as you have a base, a bench line to go with, it, it's all good. So all this is how we um, prove first principles. You have to get down to those basics. So this is not a lesson in statistics, but uh, when we test as uniformly as possible and we measure and log results to see consistency, we find out how accurate our tests are and how accurately we can predict. So using averages, we look for the patterns and then we've created this thing called the standard deviation, which is simply a measure of the amount of variation or dispersion of a set of values. If you want to test off over and over enough and it's uniform enough, you're going to get all your results grouped right together. They're all going to be about the same. So what we, what we, I don't know how this was invented or anything else, but we call a standard deviation 
either side of that mean average of whatever those test results show, some things will be a little higher or faster or slower or smaller, or whatever the measurement you're looking for. But within one standard deviation, you get, what is it, 68% of all, you know, if your tests are as uniform as possible. But then there's some outliers, and so you're going to get about 16% that'll be way at one end and way at the other end. So, again, not a, not a lesson on statistics here, but this, is, this concept matters because when we go to measure things that are not physical, that are more subjective, this is the only way we can find truth. And I'll show you what I mean by that. So in images, right? So this is a non-physical type of thing. It's physical, but it's not natural, right? If I take a picture, so these are, so you're going to see a whole bunch of my photographs. That's one I took on January 1st, 01. So 111 is the date. And uh, I got curious about that date. And so I realized the next month, the, a year and a month later, the date would be 222. So I did it again, and then 333. I spent 12 years getting up on those dates until 12, 12, 12, to make a calendar of those unique dates. And I figure, unless anybody else thought of it, I might be the only person on the planet who did this. So I'm going to make a calendar and sell it as an NFT. It's going to cost about 10 million. Anybody <laughs> wants one? So um, the landscape is natural, but the capturing of it is not. So the image is physical, but it's interpretation of someone's, it's an interpret, I'm sorry. The image is physical, but our interpretation of it is our own personal perspective. So how is an image truth? Well, by itself, it's not. But our reaction to them is. There is a truth there. There, is a, there are universal perceptions that humans agree on. It's almost like coded into our DNA. Uh, and, and I'm going to show you a few examples of that. Um, one of them in photography is something called the rule of thirds. So you might not see it right there, but there's a tic-tac-toe board on that picture. And that's how you can decide if this photograph falls into that rule. Not all photographs have to, but what people have figured out is that if you capture a picture that has certain elements in it, certain colors or certain arrangement like this, uh, more people will like it for some reason. Like, I don't know why, but we are programmed this way. This is, right, so, I, you know, it's just how it is. So this is another one. This is my favorite surf spot on Long Island. This is Hurricane Olga from 2001. And again, you know, cut it up. It's not perfect, but you can see where the, the, the tic-tac-toe board aligns. This is a picture of me. I do this a lot. I set the tripod up and mess around with the, the way the camera works. I drive past this lighthouse every day to go to work. This is the Fire Island Lighthouse. Um, but this is, uh, again, you can see, you know, you can cut it up and you can kind of see how that could work. But images also, there's something about repeating patterns that we like, right? I don't know what it is, but humans love to see repeating patterns. They're everywhere and they're, they're nice. We like them, right? So in photography, it works. How about some resting swans for this crowd? Anybody heard of swan here? Anybody? <laughs> All right, um, a side note here. In black and white photography, it is recognized there are 10 shades between black and white. And a good black and white photography will have all those shades in it. And there's some repeating patterns as well. Ansel Adams, one of the most famous, especially black and white photographers, that's all he had when he was shooting. Uh, thousands of pictures. He was like an expert of this. This is just one of thousands. But he also understood the rule of thirds, right? Uh, let's see. Uh, this is my attempt at Ansel Adam, black and white. This is Point of Woods, Fire Island, Christmas, about 10 years ago, something like that. Anyway, but you can see, you know, chop it up into thirds. It matches pretty good. So, 
back to the, uh, the bell curve. If you ask enough people to rate photos, you will see the gravitation to images that have these qualities, as I've explained. And nobody knows exactly why, other than I'm saying it, we're coded into our DNA. I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. Um, it's, uh, it's, no, oh, it's, already, it's nowhere near as perfect as plum and level, but statistically, we can prove these truths. As long as you can get close to that one standard deviation, you could say that like, you know, pretty much everybody's going to agree. Right? So it's not a natural truth, but it's out there, and we can recognize it. Right. All right, so now noise or sound is very similar, right? There's a whole bunch of things we've labeled that have to do with sound, pitch, tone, frequency, melody, harmony, octaves, chords, scales, all this stuff. We identified these things, measured them, and cataloged them. We figure out what works and what doesn't, right? So sound waves are very precise. In nature, you can absolutely measure them, and they're, and they're perfectly precise. One thing I saw once, I was watching a, a, some kind of show, and they were showing slow motion photography. And if you pluck a guitar string at one note, and then go up one octave, and you, you watch how fast it vibrates, one octave higher, it will be exactly twice as fast, and one octave lower, it will be exactly half as fast. So it's literally mathematical. Sound is mathematical. We don't get to choose this stuff. Right, there are certain, uh, there's a certain perf perfectness to sound or music that is universally enjoyable by a majority of those who hear it, uh, who, who hear combinations of notes that resonate well together. That's called consonants versus those that do not sound well together, which is called dissonance. Now, on that bell curve, you can have people way out at the edges that will like crazy music that sounds like nothing. You know, like everybody, like, ah, oh, turn it off. And some guy likes it, you know, so. But for the most part, if music is built well, most people like it. Even if it's not your style of music, it's not going to turn you off because the notes coming into your head are, uh, you know, with physics, they line up well and our brains want to hear that. Like, we don't want to hear things all disjointed. So sound is one of these first principles, but there's some subjectiveness to it. It also ties to actual physics because of the way sound waves work. Um, so once again, if you ask enough people about these patterns, you will end up with a truth about sound. It also works with taste and food, right? It's another one of these things. It's very, it's hard to measure, but it's knowable and discernible. You ask any good chef, there are certain tastes that work well together and certain tastes that do not. And most people, we've all experienced that kind of stuff, right? Kind of like sound waves, certain chemicals in the food don't resonate well with us. If you poll enough people, you'll find these truths generally for all humans. It's DNA encoded somehow, right? So plot it on a bell curve. You could decide what is truth for humans in this area. Uh, this one may be more subjective than the rest, but still somewhat universal, I think. All right, so let's look at some truths that are not physical, but we know they are there. So stuff like honesty, integrity, loyalty, trust, and trustworthiness. Just think of those words, right? These are important concepts. So what about honesty? Um, you know it's there when you can prove it or verify it. It is itself a first principle. Um, the physical manifestation of human dependent concepts. What did I even mean by that? Sorry. Um, but honesty, like we, we, we have to deal with it all the time. And if you're not honest, people are going to figure it out and they're not going to want to deal with you. So this is like this, it's a, 
again, encoded into us as humans. We need to find honesty. But you can't always measure it, but you kind of know when it's there, and you kind of know when it's not there. The same thing with integrity, right? Integrity um, revolves around consistency, commitment, being accountable, responsible, self-aware. So you see that in people that have integrity, right? So loyalty, what about loyalty? The faithfulness to your wife. Love is a type of loyalty. Uh, it's predictable, predictability. You, accountability, you know, when you're loyal or you can be counted on, right? That kind of stuff. Those are important concepts. You go into business with somebody, you kind of know they got your back, right? So trust and trustworthiness. This is a really big one, of course. That's big in this space, right? Um, trust, I heard Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People describes trust as the overlapping of character and competence. So imagine two doctors, you can choose either one for your operation. One guy's the old guy, everybody loves him, honest to a fault, but he doesn't use all the fancy equipment. So you're like, ah, should I trust that? And then you got the new young whippersnapper doctor, looks like a Hollywood actor, everybody loves him, he's expert at all the equipment, but he cheats on his wife. And you're like, well, I don't know if I really like that. Maybe I don't want to trust him, you know? So you got to have that overlapping of character, the old guy, and competence, the young guy. He knows how to use all the equipment, but does he care? Right? So it's character and competence that gets you trust and trustworthiness. Uh, these things come from people who work and test out in the real world, prove their results, and they, they gain that credibility. We see that as we, as we see how people are. We make these judgments and we decide do we want to hang out, talk to that guy, be their friend, whatever. It's all part of this stuff. So these are truths, but they're not natural truths that we can measure like plumb and level. So there's some other truths, let's see, created by man, but not, uh, what are they right here? Not resonant with, uh, holy crap, I'm almost done. Holy shit. Sorry, guys. I told you this is my first time. All right, damn. All right, let's see. So, all right, so other truths. We created these truths, like laws, like, you know, murder's not good, the, the um, non-aggression principle, shouldn't steal stuff. We, we know that about property rights. Um, honor your contracts. Um, be responsible for your actions. Okay. Then there's the construct of money, which is non-physical, non-natural truths. They're subjective, but they're still dependable. So the concept or the, the money is a construct, right? We as humans invented this thing called money. It removes barter, division, it, it gives us a division of labors, specialization. Um, money is the most saleable good, which means it's the one good you can buy anything with, and you could, with anything, you could buy money. So money is just another thing, but we use it for everything. Um, let's see, it helps, uh, uh, let's see, most, uh, most net value on the earth, uh, sorry about this, guys. I'm just going to keep going. Properties are good money. We all know what they are. Scarcity, fungibility, uniformity, verifiability, divisibility, portability, recognizability. Once it's accepted, you get network, network effects, and then it's accepted everywhere once everybody agrees on that stuff. Many things have been money. We understand that gold was what we settled on as a good money. Um, a good money is something that um, mimics a commodity like gold. Um, but and it needs some effort to produce so that no one can get uh, any unique advantages. Uh, Bitcoin is better money, something um, crucial and fair to human prosperity, in my opinion. Uh, oh, wait a second. And there was the other thing. Oh, it's a tuning fork as well. I'll get to that. I, I, see, I see Bitcoin as a tuning fork. All right, so 
I'm gonna, you're gonna just look at some pictures. <laughs> I got a three, four more slides here, almost done. So Bitcoin is better money, something crucial to, to fair human prosperity. It acts like a commodity, except with properties that can be changed. Yet, it has unique characteristics, which if changed would destroy it, but they won't be changed because of the network effects. Most people in this room understand what I just said. The hard cap, the absolute scarcity, it's not natural, it's man-made in alignment with man's nature. Right? That's what, that's what money is, and that's what Bitcoin, how Bitcoin was built. So there's an issuance schedule, which is known and predictable with certain parameters, within certain parameters, and finite, right? It's issued in a way uh, to distribute the bulk of it to true believers, right? So the people who didn't care about this, they didn't get any Bitcoin when, it was, when a lot of it was getting uh, sent out into the world. And I think that was a very important feature. Um, there's the block sizes, the scalability, the inclusiveness of, of everything, the proof of work, the proof of ownership with digital signatures. Uh, all this stuff is part of this new system of money that we have. There's hashes. I, I look at a hash as uh, are un, uh, they are unpredictable uniformity that's predictable. Right? So the number of guesses uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to get a block accepted in the blockchain using hashes, there's predictability in there, but there's also unpredictability. It's very interesting. Uh, let's see, uh, in order to, uh, yeah, so that, that the number of guesses with the difficulty factor becomes predictable using a bell curve in order to target the 10 minute blocks uh, times. The difficulty adjustment, which we all know about, uh, is network imposed and uh, physical limitations uh, it's uh, physical limitations more perfect than nature, literally based on the bell curve as a result of the past 210,000 blocks. The system adjusts itself based on those statistics, right? All right, if you take one thing away from this talk, you got to take this one away. Proof of work um, is what's important here. So, proof is, in Bitcoin, proof of work is what ties the physical world to the Bitcoin blockchain. This is why it's only Bitcoin. So a blockchain, the concept of a blockchain, this is the most critical thing. A blockchain can do one thing only. It can create and track digital files. What amounts to uh, as a shared spreadsheet, like an Excel spreadsheet of files, which would be the Bitcoins in boxes, and the, and the boxes are the addresses, and that's coordinated um, exactly to be the same all over the planet every 10 minutes. Um, this is a, a purity that uh, defines, wait, sorry. Uh, Ah, he's going to make me skip to the end. All right, sorry. Are you going to miss out on some stuff? I don't know. I, I, I didn't have a chance to really practice, so let's see. These are all, all right, so it aligns us with nature through energy. Oh, man, I hate to do this to you guys, but I'm just going to have to skip to the end. I want to, I want to talk through some more of these slides, but I can't ruin this whole thing. Um, in, the, in the end, I believe that uh, big, oh, shoot, I should have, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Similar, so, oh, you could read. Similar to how an orchestra aligns, thank you. Oh, awesome. Uh, similar to how an orchestra aligns uh, to one note struck on a metal fork that resonate to a known frequency. Once all instruments are tuned to that note, they will harmonize, and beautiful music is more probable. With one price system that can't be manipulated, everyone can get in sync with with no uh, and know they will harmonize with anybody they encounter, not just financially, but ideologically, like we all do. The likelihood of a win-win outcome in interpersonal relationships, both personal and business, is increased with beautiful results more probable. So. Um, remember that bell curve, humanity is going to settle on this as money. And when it's all said and done, 
Uh, I hope that Bitcoin will unite the world in peace. I expect world peace. Let's help humanity get there as fast as possible so we can all benefit. You can find me at Twitter at SurferJimW. Thank you for your valuable time. My worldwide family, I love you all.